This is Unfilter, episode 354 for March 17th, 2021. President Biden on defense this morning with the migrant surge growing at the southern border. Do you have to say quite clearly, don't come? Yes, I can say quite clearly, don't come. And what we're in the process of getting set up, don't leave your town or city or community. In an interview with ABC News, the president pushing back on criticism migrants are crossing in such large numbers because he has reversed several Trump-era immigration policies. Hello, friend, and welcome into the People's History Podcast, reporting live on the border down here at what? Wait, what's that? I'm sorry. New information. We're not live at the border, but neither is any other major news outlet, so it doesn't seem to matter. My name is Chris, and this, yes, this is Unfiltered 354. I, I encourage you to hit pause right now if you're listening on the on the podcast and go over, if, if you're listening on the, on the podcast... Go over to unfilter.tube. We have some video versions for you that you should check out. Just saying. Go check it out, unfilter.tube. But if you'd like the audio version, we'll continue on. I understand. You're just making a huge mistake, and I really am judging you deeply. I just – no, I don't care. It's great. Any format you want to listen to the show is just totally fine. But this week, I do want to talk about the border. And before you hit the pause button and say, I'm just going to stop listening, I actually think this is worth analyzing because there's – well, like a nice tasty dip, there's several layers to this particular issue. And it kind of really comes down to how we as a nation want to solve a particular problem that we've been kicking down the road as a can forever now. And I, I want to make it clear right here, I don't necessarily have a uh, horse in this race. I don't necessarily have an, a, a position here, but I do want to document what's happening today. And Despite what it seems the new administration has pledged, we really kind of have a mess on our hands. Here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the quarantine report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. President Biden struggling to address the overwhelming flow of migrant children crossing the U.S.-Mexico border without their parents, many fleeing extreme violence, poverty, natural disasters in their home countries of Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador. Documents obtained by several news outlets show more than 3,500 children were detained at the border in just the first nine days of March. On Monday, CBS News reported some 3,000 children are still detained in crowded cells at Border Patrol stations. Many are being held longer than the legal limit of 72 hours as the government waits for beds to become available in shelters run by the Office of Refugee Resettlement, ORR, and Department of Health and Human Services. Now, I want to mention that we have listeners in this area, and— it really cannot—it cannot be properly understood how bad of a mess this is unless you were there and you were watching this happen. But I, I just want to say to those of you who wrote into the show during this week, uh, thank you for your insights. And please do keep writing in on filter.show slash contact. If this is something that has affected you, I would like to hear from you as well. The Washington Post reports the shelters receive more than 450 new migrant children per day on average. And so keep that in mind. Some of the numbers that get quoted in this episode in some of the clips are a little behind. If you figure an average of 450 kids a day or people, uh, some of the numbers when they say like 3,000 or 4,000, as I record, it's 
actually more than that. In the first week of March, most are between the ages of 13 and 17. The Centers for uh, the Disease Control and Prevention cited the, quote, extraordinary circumstances Friday when it said the shelters um, can return to pre-pandemic capacity if they implement enhanced coronavirus protections. Biden's top advisor on U.S.-Mexico border policy, Roberta Jacobson, said Wednesday the administration's trying to balance a humane response to the children with the message that they should stop crossing. I think all of us at every stage of this process are doing everything we can to make sure that children are well cared for and moved into facilities that are appropriate for them. Yeah, I get the sense she's doing absolutely everything possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something about her just gives me a lot of confidence there. But don't call this a crisis. It's not a crisis. You see, it's just a problem that needs to be managed. Crises? That was a Trump thing. But when it comes to immigration, for the Biden White House, this, it's just a problem. To date, the White House has avoided calling the situation at the border a crisis. We recognize this is a big problem. We recognize this is a problem. It's a complicated problem. But now that the DHS is directing FEMA resources to the border, what does the White House call what's happening? Does FEMA's arrival at the border mean that the administration feels what is happening down at the border is a disaster. I know that we always get into the fun of labels around here, but I would say our focus is on solutions. FEMA, though, specifically, their mission is helping people before, during, and after disasters. I will say that um, FEMA is uh, there to help uh, ensure that the people who are at the border, who are coming across the border, uh, have access to uh, can to HHS and ORR shelters, that we can swiftly place them with vetted families. Yeah, you know, of course, FEMA's going to make sure that they get placed with families. That's what that's what FEMA's down there for. And I, I could have, I should have. I failed you. I should have read booked this. I, I should have said this on election night, that this is going to happen. Like clockwork on immigration night. <laughs> immigration night. That, hmm, hold on a second. Hold on a second here. That is an interesting – that's a good one. That's a good slip. Uh, on uh, inauguration night, <laughs> the immigration numbers just skyrocketed. We should call it immigration night. Like that is, <laughs> that is exactly what happened. They, and you, you just could have – you could have read booked it after you watched the lead up to the election and the positioning that the Democrat candidates took on immigration policies. Should someone who is here without documents, and that is his only offense, should that person be deported? That person should not be the focus of deportation. You're for decriminalizing border crossings. You're one of the people that raised <coughs> hands at the debate. Do you agree with AOC that we should get rid of DHS altogether? I am in favor of saying that we're not going to treat people who are undocumented across the border as criminals. That's correct. We are not saying don't come. We are saying don't come now. And the fact is, I've made it very clear. Within 100 days, I'm going to send to the United States Congress a pathway to citizenship for over 11 million undocumented people. I want to zoom in on that uh, Cam Cam interview that she had there with The View. You heard just a clip of it in that highlight reel that was sent to me. But this I went and grabbed. I wanted to watch that interview and get the full context for you. 
We have to have a secure border, but I am in favor of saying that we're not going to treat people who are undocumented across the border as criminals. That's correct. That is correct. And what we've got to do is we cannot have any more policy like we have, ha have under this current president that is about inhumane conduct, that is about putting babies in cages, that is about separating children from their parents. And we have got to have policy that is about passing comprehensive immigration reform with a pathway towards citizenship, shutting down these private for me, though, because yes, I please. do find it confusing. Yeah. I believe if someone crosses over the border, it's illegally. It is illegal. And McCain's daughter. And you would you would decriminalize it? I would not make it a crime punishable by jail. I, it should be a civil enforcement issue. So she feels like uh, it should be a civil enforcement issue. It should not be a crime that is punishable by jail and uh, that DHS should be reformed. She goes on to say in that interview. I play that because I think it really sends a clear signal that the new administration that was forming had a very different position than the guy that ran on building the wall. And I think it's kind of funny because it's getting spun as, well, Biden's just a nice guy, and so everybody wants to immigrate. A lot of the migrants coming in saying they're coming in because you promised to make things better. This is George Stavropoulos. It seems to be getting worse by the day. Was it a mistake not to anticipate this surge? Well, first of all, he'll never admit to any mistakes ever. There was a surge the last two years and in, in, in 19 and 20, there was a surge as well. I was impressed that he could remember that the last two years were 19 and 20. Legitimately, when he in this interview, I was like, hey, good for you, Joe. You did it. But I think <laughs> I think the reality is uh the numbers do, do not quite add up. We'll get back to that. A lot of the migrants coming in saying they're coming in because you promised to make things better. It seems to be getting worse by the day. Was it a mistake not to anticipate this surge? Well, first of all, there was a surge the last two years in, in, in 19 and 20. There was a surge as well. This I'm, one might be worse. No, well, it could be. But here's the deal. We're sending back people to, for, for, first of all, the idea that Joe Biden said come because I, I heard the other day that they're, they're coming because they know I'm a nice guy and I won't do they're what saying this. Yeah. And George, he's so thrilled. This is a great moment to watch the video version. Look at him. His eyebrows, they're way up. His eyes, they've lit up. He's got a, uh, a Joker smile on him like, like only you'd see from the original Batman movie kind of smile. I mean... We're talking a real crazy kind of guy smile here. You know what I mean, right? Oh, Jack Nicholas, the original Joker. It's the original Joker smile right there. And he's just, he, they're really saying that. They're really saying that you're a nice guy. Everybody loves you. There was a surge as well. This I'm, one might be worse. No, well, it could be. But here's the deal. We're sending back people to, for, for, first of all, the idea that Joe Biden said come because I, I heard the other day that they're, they're coming because they know I'm a nice guy and I won't do they're what saying this. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. I think like George peed himself a little bit. You know, like when you get home, for, when you got a new puppy and he piddles a little bit when you when you say hi to him because he's still learning. Like that's George right now. Yeah, that Joe Biden said come because I, I heard the other day that they're, they're coming because they know I'm a nice guy and I won't do they're what saying this. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. They're not. Do you have to say quite clearly? <laughs> I like how, you know, he just shut the whole thing down. You know, here's the deal. They're not saying that.
that Joe Biden said come because I, I heard the other day that they're, they're coming because they know I'm a nice guy and I won't do they're what saying Trump this. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. They're not. Do you have to say quite clearly, don't come? Yes, I can say quite clearly, don't come. And what we're in the process of getting set up, don't leave your town or city or community. Don't go just yet. Don't go. You know, hold on. Wait a little bit. We're still setting up. We're still setting up. That's legitimately his answer. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. They're not. Do you have to say quite clearly, don't come? Yes, I can say quite clearly, don't come. And what we're in the process of getting set up, don't leave your town or city or community. Yeah, hold on now, you know, wait more for the fall. But the results, they speak for themselves. You just have to actually go to the border and talk to somebody responsible for border enforcement, and they can tell you this actually legitimately is a surge. Now, stop, pause, wait, hold on. Don't actually pause, but you know what I mean? Like, stop for a second. Honestly, ask yourself. Look back at the history of this show. When have I ever talked about surges at the border? or a bunch of migrants coming into the country. Cite a single episode ever. You can't. I don't. I didn't talk about it before because while this is being used for political gain, there is a difference this time. This time there is a difference. And I am trying to document that difference for you right now. And the results speak for themselves here. So this... This has become an issue that is going to impact the United States long term. And now, now it is on the radar of this show. But immigration, immigration policies, the border, these have not been topics that I have used on this show to get views or clicks. It's not something I generally talk about. I generally am zooming out a level above that. But now, now it's all coming together. Policy, news, and a humanitarian situation that we've got to talk about. And the results speak for themselves. Biden can say that in 2020 and 2019, we were having surges. But the reality is there are a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people coming in right now. And it seems obvious the reason why. So right now we're about 100% over where we were this time this last fiscal year. Um, we've already surpassed, in the first four months of this fiscal year, we've already surpassed all of 2018. If, if the flow continues at the rate it is here, by the end of this fiscal year, we will have surpassed 18, 19, and 20 all combined. All concern blamed the uptick on an expected reversal of get tough policies put in place under President Trump. Build that wall, build that wall, build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. At the end of 2018, 2,000 immigrants a day were being intercepted at the southern border, prompting security concerns and a humanitarian crisis. In early 2019, the Trump administration invoked migrant protection protocols, forcing those seeking asylum to wait in Mexico. Then in 2020, Title 42, an emergency health order, let border officials immediately turn back illegal immigrants because of COVID-19. The moves had a dramatic impact. By May of 2020, 90% of illegal immigrants caught at the southwest border were being expelled, and the number intercepted dropped from about a million in 2019 to roughly half that in 2020. Illegal border crossers were being taken back into Mexico and released. 
Now they're getting released inside U.S. border communities. Well, this is our little downtown. Yeah. 65 miles north of the border, Wilcox, Arizona Mayor Mike Laws heard rumors of a new plan to use his small city as a repository for overflow from an expected onslaught of illegal immigration through a large border patrol station that happens to be situated on the edge of town. I don't have soup kitchens. I don't have a facility to even put someone in to put beds in. Border Patrol's plan is to escort the border crossers here and point them in the direction of the local Greyhound bus stop at the Texaco station. Inside Statuary Hall. This is an incredibly dangerous situation. It's like Joey says, the words of a president, they matter. Absolutely stunning, and it's quite frankly dangerous. Uh, president Trump could stop this with one tweet. The words of the president matter. This was a fraudulent election. At the best, can inspire. We love you. You're very special. It's obvious. You know, uh, they have been extremely clear that they want to integrate as much as fast as possible. And I actually don't have a position on that. Um, I know a lot of people do, but I, I don't. The, the, this whole thing is is just a, a mess and a humanitarian crisis because people end up in these horrible camps. And I know someone who has been contracted to provide food services for these camps. And I know that they have been planning for this because they were contracted for this month or two ago. They knew this was coming. Um, he, you know, he's moving from the Pacific Northwest down to that area to basically make the, a killing of a lifetime. He's going to come back and probably never need to work again. Clearly, the, the problem is that it's it's complicated like it's it's a huge huge complicated screwed up extremely divisive mess that involves figuring out the United States' immigration policy which is a can that has been kicked for years it's exasperated by a pandemic where we're not properly and able to test everyone coming in I think it's also been a bit, I guess, inflamed, you could say, by the recent political changes. The Biden administration came in on a mission to undo a lot of Trump's key policies like he did to Obama. And some of the most consequential stuff Trump did was around the border, the border wall and immigration like that last clip just demonstrated. You have to figure, just this, just looking at this as a facts thing, not a political thing, not a left or a right thing, but just looking at this thing, you have to figure that the Remain in Mexico program must have been a big part of why the numbers reduced. There was a four-year Remain in Mexico program where, and this kind of makes sense during a pandemic, we'd Cover your costs to stay in Mexico and wait for the process. Now, there are multiple sides to this. You know, that's why I opened with democracy now. But I also want to play the other side. And there was this interview with Lindsey Graham. Yes, Lindsey Graham, who, you know, if I had the opportunity, 
I'd love to fart in his face. You know it. You guys, you guys know that. You know you would too, right? You'd fart. You'd totally fart in Lindsey Graham's face, right? I, I'd love to fart in his face. He just is like the, he's like the the Kamala on the Republican side, where he just totally goes wherever the political winds are going. Has no actual moral compass, <laughs> you know. You know, he was McCain's butt buddy forever. And then when McCain died, he like immediately saddled right up to Trump, even though McCain was totally against Trump. It's just it just in the last couple of years. But if you've watched Lindsay for a while, he's always been like that. But. He was in this interview and he was kind of, I don't know, raw. He's raw in a way that we've never really seen before. And I, I kind of. <laughs> Ooh, I just almost threw up a little bit, but I kind of agree with Lindsey Graham's assessment of the situation. Oh, excuse me. Oh, God. A big piece of the illegal immigration puzzle that tamped down the numbers at the southern border was President Trump's Remain in Mexico program. Critics say it put asylum seekers at risk and are cheering on the Biden administration decision to end it. But supporters of Remain in Mexico, including Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, have dire predictions. How would you characterize what you see coming on the border now? A show. Uh, it's going to be really bad. Um, Have you ever heard Lindsey Graham say shit before? <laughs> I hadn't. I want to. I want to replay that moment. What you see coming on the border now? A show. Uh, it's going to be really bad. Um, illegal immigration's a business. It's a dirty, nasty business, like drug dealing. You prey on the hopes and dreams of some desperate people. This reads true to me. That's why I say, like, I know it's weird to agree with Lindsey Graham. But this reads true to me in a big way. Like, I, I don't think he's lying here. This feels like a genuine concern of his. Illegal immigration's a business. It's a dirty, nasty business, like drug dealing. You Prey on the hopes and dreams of some desperate people, the coyotes and the uh, human traffickers, entice people to pay them money to get them to the United States with the hope that they can stay. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of illegal immigration is that drug dealers and people who sell counterfeit goods into the country will take a group of illegal immigrants and have them surge the border creating a resource problem so they can get their drugs and their counterfeit goods through the border somewhere else. It's a multi-billion dollar business. The incentives uh, that Biden is creating is going to reopen this business big time. It's going to be worse than it's ever been before because word is out. Let's take the viewpoint of some advocates who say there are a lot of deserving people who need help and they right. should be able to come here and have a chance. This is a disaster in the making. Trump was right about the asylum abuse. Under the old system, if you got one foot in the United States and you claim asylum, we have to process your claim. We release you into the United States. Your hearing is four years in the future. There's a million and a half people waiting to have their asylum case heard. Nobody shows up. 90% of the people who are processed and released in the United States never show up for the hearing four years later. So what did Trump do? He said the following. Mexico, if you will hold these people in your country until the court date comes, I will help you pay for that. Guess what? The Remain in Mexico uh, policy 
shut down asylum seekers. It went from being full to almost empty. Why? Nobody's going to pay $20,000 from Guatemala to wait in Mexico for four years. When the word got out that you can't stay in the United States, that they're going to send you back to Mexico, you're not released in the United States, the whole program dried up. Now, word is out that the remaining Mexico policy is being changed. So the smugglers and the human traffickers are advertising in Guatemala and El Salvador and Honduras and other places that the uh, old system is back. I could see it. I really could. I, I could totally see it that the Remain in Mexico program creates a disincentive for the coyotes, but removing that program creates the incentive for them to just go full force. And you think about how did so many people show up all of a sudden? There, there had to be some organizing happening, right? There had to be some kind of messaging happening. And to me, it reads solid that it would be messaging from somebody trying to make a buck. That seems pretty believable to me based on what I have observed of your human nature. But regardless, the media access to these areas that have been set up that are totally not kids in cages this time, even though these were the same facilities that were originally built during the Obama administration, media access to these areas is being limited. So that means we as the people are getting limited information. We're not seeing the full story. Within minutes of filming a processing center on the border, agents ask us to leave. So you can't come out here unescorted. The media's access to federal-run sites has been restricted, making it harder to understand how the process is working. But under a bridge that connects Mexico to the United States, we were able to see dozens of children and adults waiting for processing. Families are given water, snacks, and foil blankets while they wait to officially enter the system. Nothing makes you feel good, like things are just going fine when they start blocking media access. Nothing wrong there, right? Of course, in the meantime, the Republicans are completely and totally worthless. All they can do in all of this is make hay out of it and try to hold the attention of the American people on this topic instead of Biden's Recovery Act. And... In the process, they end up using towns as props. This crisis is created by the presidential policies of this new administration. There's no other way to claim it than a Biden border crisis. The safety and security of Americans and our border is the job of the president. He is the one who created this, and he is the one who can fix it. Joining me now is Democratic Congresswoman Veronica Escobar of Texas. Thank you very much from El Paso right there on the border. Uh, Congresswoman, I first want you to give you a chance to respond to Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader. Andrea, thank you so much for having me on your program. It's it's a pleasure and an honor always. Ah, blah, 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 blah. She goes on to say that uh, they don't like being used as a prop. Here's the reality. So, um, and there is, uh, I'll have a link in the show notes if you want to see more about this. Right before Trump left office, there was a ton of work done at the border. They worked 24-hour shifts. They built as much wall as possible. They went crazy on the wall building. They really went all in. Uh, one of the locals down there said that because of all the equipment and lighting they brought, you couldn't tell if it was day or night. That's how they just... 
It was lit, and they were building wall as fast as possible. Now, anyone who's ever been slightly involved in construction at all that's listening to this says, well, to have all of that gear, to have all of those people, they must have had to transport heavy equipment to that area. And you don't bring heavy equipment into that area to build things like that without having roads. You are right. They dynamited roads into the hillsides. They created roads to bring all the equipment in with the intention of tidying it all up afterwards. But the day that Biden was inaugurated, they repealed the border emergency that Trump had instituted. When that emergency was no longer in effect, the authorization to build was removed. And like a light bulb turning off, all of the construction stopped. Locals remark about the fact that just one day after just this intense, intense amount of 24-7 activity, they woke up on January 21st, there was no activity. None at all. It was weird, they said. But here's the funny thing. <laughs> just like classic. So uh, quite a bit of wall got put down like in Arizona. Um, but there's huge gaps in the wall where they were going to build gates that never got built. <laughs> there's just like giant gaps. Um, and there's roads now. Where before there was incredible tough terrain that no one could circumnavigate. Now, there's roads. <laughs> so while they do a surge of, of immigration and then they do a drug run, there's literally roads now for them to drive vans on where before they had to, like, pack it across mountains. <laughs> it's just like they've left it. The political dysfunction of the United States has left it in a worse condition. It would have been better to either just finish that section of the wall and then destroy the roads or... Or just tear it all down. But instead, what we've done is we have a half-built wall. And we have completely left our mark all over natural earth around there. If you're not from that area or you've never been in that area, you can't really appreciate the vastness of that area. Because when you think of the United States, you think of it as a crowded place. But in actuality, it's vast, especially here on the West. It is just unbelievable and we're talking like hundreds of miles of border wall that have been built but to build that to get the gear there they had to destroy the land and so the land has just been wrecked in that area wrecked and then because they just turned it off overnight they never did any of the repair work they never fixed it up and now there are roads for for these coyotes and drug traffickers to actually drive on. We have created pathways with gate openings that have no gate. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And it's because of just political dysfunction in the United States. Wrap your head around that beauty. We've made the problem worse in every possible way. Every possible way. <laughs> and it's... It's both parties' faults. It is absolutely 100% both parties' faults. And the situation is getting worse, and now they can't properly COVID test. So now we're, at, but when they have, when NGOs have come in, they have found about 9 to 10% of the people that are coming in have COVID 19. 
That doesn't seem great, does it? No, <laughs> it doesn't seem like a great idea. But because of COVID-19, they're, they're not allowing anyone to visit. They're not allowing media in. They're not even allowing potential family members in. Nobody can go into the facilities because of COVID-19 potentials. But yet they're not, they don't test because they can't, because they don't have the capacity, because we haven't spent the time to get quick, efficient, bulk testing taken care of. And now it's biting us in a way that could have massive ramifications long term. Because if you look around the world right now, things aren't going so well with old COVID-19. The variants in Ontario, up just north of us, another border, are getting a little out of hand and now represent the majority of infections. The first chance she got, Mina Koo in Toronto booked her shot. I'm worried about the variants, not the regular COVID-19. For good reason, the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table warned today that the virus's variants of concern are taking over. More than 50% of the cases are in the province are caused by the new variants. Fueling the third wave that is underway, says the board. The Ontario Hospital Association raised the alarm yesterday too, citing ICU numbers. Concern over the variants is all in the data, says Dr. Uni. These new variants are 40% more transmissible, not only in the UK, not only in Portugal, not only in Ireland, also in Ontario. If we want to know why these new variants are new trans- so transmissible, we have to understand the origins. We have to understand why COVID-19 was so perfectly ready to get into the human body. Did that just happen because it came from a bat? We need to properly understand its origins. And unfortunately, we are no closer to that. So our friends to the north, they're experiencing a third wave, as they put it. But it doesn't end there. Not only our friends from the south are experiencing a third wave, but our friends across the pond are as well. So we witness a new wave across much of Europe as well. The images tonight, half of Italy now on lockdown yet again. These images from Milan virtually empty, and so are the famous tourist sites in Rome. And tonight, it's not just this new wave, but growing concern over a key vaccine that they've been using now halted in several countries in Europe. Here's our foreign correspondent, James Longman, tonight. Tonight, Europe's vaccine crisis is deepening. Already criticized for being slow to vaccinate, France, Germany and Sweden now among more than a dozen countries to have suspended use of the AstraZeneca vaccine. They cite reports of alleged side effects, including a small number of blood clots, some of which have caused deaths. But the numbers are tiny, just 37 cases in 17 million vaccinations, leaving many wondering why stop the entire programme. The cases referred to Europe's health regulator, who tried to allay concerns today, saying there's no evidence the vaccine is to blame. We are still firmly convinced that the benefits of the AstraZeneca vaccine in preventing COVID-19 with its associated risk of hospitalisation and death outweigh the risk of these side effects. In Britain, where more than 11 million have received the AstraZeneca shot, there have been no reports of any serious reactions. It's a delay Europe cannot afford, already vaccinating at less than one third the rate of the UK or US. COVID is surging across the continent. It's already caused another lockdown in Italy. ICU patients in Paris flown to other hospitals because they're at capacity. The World Health Organization says all countries should continue to use this vaccine. Canada today even recommending they expand their use of it. The danger? These delays and doubts increase vaccine hesitancy, and that could cost lives. Yeah, 
Yeah, they definitely could. And I do not like the idea that this is spreading faster. Um, just seems, it just seems like the U.S. is on the, the verge of getting back to normal. It's spring again. Everybody feels like they have a fresh new step. The sun is out. People want to go outside. Uh, I don't think we internally are ready for another wave to hit us. I just don't think psychologically we could handle it. And you have to think part of what solving and preventing that is going to be is is kind of a whole world strategy here. It's a tricky one. Either either we just either we somehow get herd, herd immunity or we try to make the vaccine accessible to everyone. It's kind of like your two pathways. The issue is is that the United States and other wealthy nations are blocking efforts to get the vaccine into nations that just don't have the infrastructure or the capital to develop something like this. It just seems short-sighted. If 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 our Congress critters move to block something like this, it's only going to serve to long-term create something even nastier with some variant, you know, we're already we're already having problems with variants. And if you let it just bake in some third world that can't afford to, you know, pay billions of dollars to some pharmaceutical company, that variant that they're going to cook up is eventually going to hit us right in the face. And so this just seems very short-sighted. You're on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. The United States and other wealthy members of the World Trade Organization have blocked a proposal to waive intellectual property rights related to COVID vaccines. South Africa and India had pushed the proposal as part of an attempt to increase the availability of vaccines in poorer countries. The People's Vaccine Alliance recently said, while rich countries are vaccinating one person every second, the majority of poorer nations have yet to administer a single shot. That's over a hundred nations. Uh-oh. And uh, there was a leaked audio that I saw the Hill cover. So if you haven't seen that, go check that out. Of uh, I think it was a Pfizer executive. It was a pharmaceutical executive talking about what their plan is to monetize the vaccine is to A, raise prices, B, Institute booster shots because they plan and hope for this to roll over from pandemic to endemic. And then they just are going to issue maintenance shots for COVID-19 like they do the flu vaccine. So you're going to get your flu vaccine every year and you're going to get your COVID-19 vaccine every year. And the both will be billed separately. They're going to be different line items on the bill. And um, the Hill covered the audio because like a Zoom meeting of the executives talking about that leaked out this week. <laughs> And they're just totally looking forward to, like, raising the prices. They're like, right now, right now, it's it's really being driven by governments. The, the, the purchases of the vaccine are being driven by governments. So we have to plan for long-term monetization because eventually the government purchases will dry up. But then once that happens, people are going to care a lot more about efficacy. They actually say this. Once that happens, people will care a lot more about efficacy of the vaccine. So the ones that are the most effective are going to really stay in the market, which implies some are not effective. But anyways, then he goes on to say we will transition it to more of an endemic treatment and uh, it'll be part of a yearly batch. So go check out the Hills YouTube channel because I love them and I think they do a great job. I don't always love them, but I love them enough that I recommend them and they're on YouTube. 
and uh, Crystal and Sagar do a great job every day. And that was one of the clips on their YouTube channel. But I don't want to go there. Right now, I'm looking at this situation. So Europe is taken or well, I, I don't actually know as, as of I record this because everything's moving very fast. But some, I think the number is 17 nations have have put a pause on one of the vaccines. Other vaccine supplies are, are running out. We're blocking vaccine supplies to certain third world nations. So guess what ends up happening? A black market develops. A black market for the vaccine. That sure sounds safe, doesn't it? Americans recently began getting doses of the third COVID-19 vaccine to receive approval for emergency use. Today, well over 50 million people in the U.S. have been vaccinated, at least officially that's the number. Lisa Fletcher reports on a surprising development, an online black market for coronavirus vaccines. The government hopes the third approved COVID vaccine now getting to Americans will be a game changer. Made by Johnson & Johnson, it doesn't need special refrigeration and it works with just a single shot. But like any in-demand product, there's already a dark side. This is a global thing that everyone's freaking out about and a lot of people will bend or break rules to get their shots. Along with that, they're willing to pay money. I'm sure a lot of people in the United States would pay 500 bucks if they knew they could get to the front of the line and get a COVID shot. Developing and distributing the vaccine so quickly has made tracking the millions of doses difficult. For fraudsters and criminals, it's a gold mine. I got my first computer in a modem when I was about 13. Chris Rulin is a 25-year veteran of the information security industry. He noticed the first online ads for COVID vaccines appearing as early as April 2020, well before any vaccine was developed. This was a dark web posting from April 6, 2020. Why the hell would I take a test? <laughs> you know, you just you knew it was going to happen, right? Human nature. It just, it just can't help itself. Come on, man. I agree. Come on, man. I agree. I agree. Come on, man. I know, right? Come on, man. You know what I should do? I should take a moment and actually talk about how this show is made. It's made because people go to patreon.com slash unfilter and they support this podcast. It's, it's not a moneymaker for me. Um, if I could wave a magic wand... This would be like the only show I do. Maybe I do it more than once a week. I don't know. Maybe not. This would be the show. But I don't think there's a big market for people telling the truth and kind of taking a reasonable position on things. Just not really what drives a lot of passion. Doesn't drive a lot of interest. It serves the overall community to have accurate information and leveled analysis, but it doesn't drive passion that... That you you'll see some YouTube channels like Louder with Crowder or or uh, Tim Pool who who take really kind of hardline positions on stuff and kind of play up the drama of the angle, uh, and that's something I've elected not to do. And it means not as many people listen to the show. It it means maybe we have a more honest conversation about what's going on every week, but it also means essentially the show takes a financial loss. That's just the reality of media. It sucks. But uh, you know it's true because you can see the proof in the pudding when you look around at the media landscape, can't you? You, can, you know what I'm saying is true. Uh, I wish it wasn't. And that's why I, I have to appeal to some of you who are willing to place value on this show and go to patreon.com slash unfilter and sign up. Uh, it's not as many as I would hope, but those of you who do, every single one of you really matter to me. 
And it's not that those of you listening don't. I, I just I'm I'm sort of motivated by the next by the next patron. You know, it it becomes a source of validation eventually because it, it is a real exchange of my effort for their value. And uh, I appreciate it. Patreon.com slash unfilter. Thank you so much for supporting the show. And now let's talk about a real moneymaker. War, baby. Syria has essentially become the new Libya, another failed state after U.S. intervention where we had failed policy, in part because we oscillate like some sort of fish out of water between political extremes, and we can't really finish anything we start. And now Syria is, in a very sad way, a failed state. And I want to I make this point as we get into a broader discussion around the war in Afghanistan. This is Syria's reality after a decade of war. Lines outside bakeries offering subsidized bread show the deepening economic crisis, the worst since the conflict began. The local currency has crashed. It affected the price of food and basic goods. The UN says 60% of the population, or more than 12 million people, do not have regular access to food. The salary of a government employee is worth around $15. Many people are eating just bread and dried wheat. Meat is a luxury. There is hunger and there is anger at the regime. But people can't do anything. Bashar al-Assad may not have recaptured every inch of Syria as he promised, but he survived the war with the help of Russia and Iran. Let's let's go back in time. How did that war how did that war start? Well, in March of 2011, a pro-democracy demonstration erupted in the southern city of Dorera. We don't know for sure. I can't come on the air and tell you with absolute certainty. But to me, pro-democracy demonstrators sound like Western-backed demonstrators. I'm not saying specifically U.S., I'm saying Western-backed. Pro-democracy demonstrations erupted. Perhaps they were supplied with Toyotas, walkie-talkies, and cookies by Victoria Newland. When these demonstrators, these Western potentially demonstrators, these pro-democracy demonstrators, perhaps they were truly pro-democracy. I don't know. I truly don't know. We can't know. We haven't been given that information. But when they started up, the Assad regime responded in a way that seemed to indicate they knew they were Western-backed. The Assad regime, which, which he supposedly is elected, they went all in. They used deadly force to crush the dissidents. Some of them, I think there was collateral damage, were kids. That gave the opening to the West to come in, and as our buddy Victoria Newland likes to say, F the EU. They came in and they they never really left. They started overthrowing different areas. And I, the reason why I mentioned Victoria Newland is because there was actually a time where she was down on the ground handing out, I don't know, muffins or cookies or something to the pro-democracy demonstrators. It was a Western-backed overthrow. It's a standard policy. It's what we always do. 
we created a civil war. And then when Assad responded in kind, we used every opportunity to call him a dictator, to call him a, a madman. Maybe he was, but we caused him to run into the arms of Russia and Iran in a way that he'd never had before. Then now it's been 10 years. 10 years. In the meantime, people's homes have been destroyed, their cities destroyed. There's a refugee crisis. They're living in tents and mud. It's disgusting. But it pales in comparison to the shithole we have created in Afghanistan. Pales in comparison. It's disgusting. And there really is no way for us to fully appreciate the monetary waste along with the life waste. There really is, unless, unless you've been there. And I've talked to multiple people who have served. And what's crazy, man, I, I, I sincerely mean this. I have talked to people who are my age. And I have talked to guys who are half my age who have served there. Think about that for a second. Can you imagine the amount of waste that's going on in Afghanistan? And right now, right now, as we are talking about this, the Biden administration is calculating whether to pull out or stay because there was a Trump plan left in place to wind down troop numbers. And, you know, if you could point to anything that the Trump administration did right, it was that they didn't spin up any new wars and he tried to spin down Afghanistan. He came to some sort of peace agreement with the Taliban and the Afghanistan government. But since Trump has left office, the Pentagon has been laying down information about the Taliban to sort of project an image that things are falling apart and that the situation cannot proceed. President Biden faces critical decisions on whether to move forward with a complete withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan in America's longest war. The determination is being made amid the continuing waste of massive amounts of U.S. taxpayer dollars, as flagged in the newest report from the Special Inspector General tracking waste, fraud and abuse. The Afghan war started in 2001. Since then, well over 130 billion U.S. tax dollars have been spent on Afghan reconstruction. A new report finds more than $2.4 billion was wasted on properties that were unused, abandoned, not used for their intended purposes, had deteriorated or were destroyed. The report is from the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, John Sopko, America's watchdog for waste, fraud and abuse in Afghanistan. Of almost $8 billion worth of property targeted for inspection, $2.4 billion worth was found to have been squandered. Among the waste, a Kashmir goat farm and laboratory. The Pentagon spent $2.3 million building, equipping and training staff for it, the inspector general says it's now abandoned with most of the equipment stripped and missing. Camp Leatherneck, as we reported in 2016, the U.S. spent more than $30 million to construct a 64,000-square-foot military headquarters in Afghanistan that was never used by the U.S. It's a beautiful building. It was well done, fully furnished. It was huge. 64,000 approximately square feet. Nicknamed 64K because of its size, Congress intended it to be headquarters for the 2010 U.S. military surge of 30,000 troops to fight Taliban Islamic extremists. 
There was just one problem. The Marine commander, the general in the ground running the surge, said, I don't want it, I don't need it, don't build it. And two other generals above him said the same thing. Don't build it. We don't need it. We already have a headquarters. It's a waste of money. To see how the Afghans might be using America's former Camp Leatherneck today, Sopko's team did an analysis using mapping technology, finding it was too dangerous for inspectors to go on site. But the Pentagon classified the results. And there's also the $57.8 million Kabul Hotel. Credit for this boondoggle goes to the Overseas Private Investment Corporation under the U.S. Agency for International Development. The hotel project was never finished. The U.S. Embassy condemned the site and said it couldn't be salvaged. Inspector General Sopko found only around 15 percent of the billions spent on properties was being used as intended. And of $7.8 billion spent on facilities, 96 percent of the money went to facilities not being maintained in good condition. I think one of the most common threads when I used to meet up with people in person back when that was a thing, people would pull me aside like at Linux events and be like, I just want you to know. I really like Linux Unplugged or whatever it might be. But I really appreciate Unfilter. I'm like, oh, you're an Unfilter listener. Like, yeah, yeah, I just want, I used to serve. And, you know, everything you say about the military budget, it's so right, but it's so much worse than you could possibly imagine. Like, it, any figures that you talk about, it's like 10 times worse than that. The money spent over here or over there was ridiculous. And it's something the civilians will never understand. Um, and from that, I've gotten the sense that the biggest scandal around all of this is in some sense the money spent that they try to hide from the public. But here's what's really the problem. The real problem is the machine has spun up. The Pentagon is seeding the information space, saying, oh, the Taliban is not not cooperating. They're, they are, they're, they're still fighting, which of course they are. Right? They are, they're preparing the way for Biden to say, we can't pull out just yet. We're damn near the 20-year mark here, America's longest war. If Biden chooses to punt this right now at his most political power right now, his peak political power after coming into office, well, <laughs> I mean, it's never going to happen, right? And I talked about the Hill earlier. Sagar really has a great take on this because he and I both sort of got into this around the time of the Iraq war, and he has a lens on this that I think is, is, is worth hearing. All right, Sagar, what's on your radar? Well, as I told you all last week, one of the most important stories I have my eye on that the mainstream media is largely letting go by unnoticed is the upcoming May 1st deadline that the United States set under the Trump administration to pull all remaining troops out of Afghanistan. The deadline was set as part of a nascent peace deal that was struck by the Trump team with the Taliban in which U.S. troops would withdraw and the Afghan government would agree to let the Taliban participate in the legitimate political system there. In my estimation, it may be one of the most important things that Trump did while he was in office. And I want to stop there. So I think this is where Sagar and I sync up. I, I totally agree. Like you can look at all the stupid shit that Trump said and all of the crazy things that happened with the covid virus. But he didn't launch an additional Middle East war and he legitimately fought the generals to spin down the Afghan war. He fought the Pentagon machine who really tried to make the public case that it was a bad idea. He resisted the bad look, probably ultimately because he knew it would serve him. Let's not kid ourselves. But it was the right move. It was probably the best thing he's done. And it's something that we won't see out of Biden. 
And that is exactly why the establishment is doing everything in its power to push Joe Biden to reverse it and keep the gravy train going on forever. Already, the Pentagon has said the Taliban has broken the deal, giving Biden the cover if he wants it to stay in Afghanistan. But to show you just how duplicitous they really are is a stunning new report from the New York Times. This entire time, I've told you there are only 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. Well, it turns out this was a bald-faced lie from the Pentagon. There are actually 3,500. How does that happen? How do we as a democracy get lied to by our military? Listen carefully, because this does not portend well for Biden. At the end of his administration, Trump was adamant that he wanted to lower the number of troops in Afghanistan. Since he was legally commander in chief, the Pentagon technically had to comply. But as you know, at the time, the Pentagon did everything in their power to resist. So much so that it appears that the Department of Defense and other national security agencies relied on an age-old tactic. They simply classified many of the troops as present in Afghanistan under special operations protocols, which don't require them to disclose the number. Whether Trump even knew the true number is unclear, but it enables everyone to say, see, reduce the number to X when the real number is Y. This is dystopian. It's lying by another name. And it reveals that even when you think you've won a small victory by reducing troops, the real number may be higher. You know, I have no idea. It is literally a repeat of the lies of the Vietnam War. And this expose is an all too familiar scandal. But it really is scarier when you consider that it's not exactly headline news on major cable news organizations in America. This is literally a massive lie about America's longest war. And an expose like this lands with a dud. Worse, the media, when it does decide to pay attention, just can't stop manufacturing consent. As I said here before, I track this space very closely because I used to cover the Pentagon. I know their tricks and I know how they launder their concerns in the press and shape the information environment. Launder their concerns in the press and shape the information environment. I think that's brilliant. The first time I heard Sagar say that, I thought, okay, that's, you know, it's a little bit much. But upon reflecting, that is 100 freaking percent what is happening. And they 100% know what they're doing. And I love how he, ar- he articulates it here. Uh, he really is killing it. Here before, I track this space very closely because I used to cover the Pentagon. I know their tricks and I know how they launder their concerns in the press and shape the information environment to box in democratically elected leaders so that we never leave Afghanistan. And like clockwork, after the examples I showed you last week, this one popped up from the LA Times. Quote, leaving Afghanistan under Trump's deal could spur chaos, U.S. commanders say. Oh, really? U.S. commanders say, well, I guess I'm not a patriot if I have some questions. So let's investigate their claims. The top U.S. commander in the Middle East has this to say, quote, if we withdraw and no deal was made with the Taliban, I think the government of Afghanistan is going to be in for a very stiff fight to retain possession. Let me translate that for you. Basically, the problem we have is that even though we have a deal with the Taliban, the Afghan government, our supposed allies, never agreed to it. Now, why wouldn't the Afghans agree to that deal? It's simple. They don't want us to leave. They want us to pay their bills. We protect them. Our gravy train of billions subsidizes all their bank accounts in Dubai, and it lets them rule on an empty throne where they don't actually have to do anything and they still get paid. Yeah. 
imagine if you had the U.S. military backing up your power. You don't have to do dick anything. <laughs> you don't. You don't have to do a single damn thing. We are essentially enabling government corruption by remaining there, and we're going to do it. The Biden administration is already preparing the public for the idea. They, they're going to feed it to you in a couple of spoonfuls of sugar, and then you're going to get your medicine. The Taliban has intensified its military offensive across Afghanistan as President Biden looks to end America's longest war potentially in the near future. He is reviewing the Trump administration's 2020 peace deal that calls for U.S. troops to leave the war-torn country by May 1st. That's going to be the key thing that they're going to execute on. They're going to they're going to say, you know, look, the previous guy, he had a real bad deal. He'll use the same excuse that Trump used. You don't think you don't think so? Well, I have a link in the show notes. Here's a quote from Biden. He was talking to ABC's Good Morning America. And when he said he was in the process, he says, quote, the fact is that it was not a very solidly negotiated deal that the president, the former president, worked out. And so we're in consultation with our allies as well as the government. And that decision is going to be it's in process now. You see, the last guy didn't make a very good deal. Then Biden blamed the delay. Get ready for this. He blamed the delay on figuring out what they're going to do on the transition process after the election. I promised you this would happen. I promised you this would happen. He says, quote, the failure to have an orderly transition from the Trump presidency to my presidency has cost some time, has cost me some time and consequences. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. It's on NPR.org. And so because of an unorderly transition, they're going to have to kick this can down the road. And in the meantime, those troops are going to have to stay there. That's just what's going to have to happen. <laughs> how, how, how freaking typical is this? However, a surge in violence and deadly attacks have forced officials to rethink their strategy, fearing a total withdrawal will trigger more bloodshed between Afghans and militants. NATO officials are meeting this week to discuss the next steps. The Taliban must reduce violence, negotiate in good faith, and live up to their commitment to stop cooperating with international terrorist groups. Our common goal is clear. Afghanistan should never again serve as a haven for terrorists to attack our homelands. 9-11 mentioned right there got to work in the 9-11 angle they just that's how they say it now that's how they uh, that's how they say it ah oh, you know it's so great it's so great to see to see a well-oiled machine at work in a way you have to kind of respect the machine <laughs> it's i mean you know war machine's gonna war machine what are you gonna do right but we can sit back and look at it and go damn look at how it works and at least we can be aware of it i think in the meantime we have more problems at home we have deep problems at home and uh, I think it's just indisputable that the number one problem at home is QAnon. I am just a 20-year-old college girl losing hope in maintaining any healthy relationship with my parents. Avid QAnon members and followers. My parents first began their exploration of conspiracy theories when I was a child. Topics of conversation around the dinner table centered around the Illuminati, reptilian people, brainwashing, or Pizzagate. 
Man, that sounds like an awesome dinner. I want to go to that dinner party. That sounds great. Like, legitimately way better than all of the other common bullshit small talk. However, the 2016 election cycle birthed an entirely new obsession. Upon the first post from QAnon, my parents were hooked. Their infatuation with President Trump became out of control. You know, because the QAnon thing, it worked as a post on Facebook. The first post, as as if that's how QAnon came about, was a uh, rando post on Facebook. I love the reframing of history that's being done by the lens of a of a poor, neglected child. However, the 2016 election cycle birthed an entirely new obsession. Upon the first post from QAnon, my parents were hooked. Their infatuation with President Trump became out of control and, by the textbook definition, religious. Anyone else who does not believe in this QAnon narrative is the enemy. I have been called a disappointment, a failure, and a brainwashed elitist idiot. I like that her parents were apparently avid 4chan users, and that religion is used as a scary thing here. You know, like, if you want to make somebody sound like an extremist, say that they're religious about something. And by the textbook definition, religious. Anyone else who does not believe in this QAnon narrative is the enemy. I have been called a disappointment, a failure, and a brainwashed elitist idiot. It weighs on me. My father told me that you need to fight for Trump, as he has been appointed by God to serve this country. If you do not, the rapture is coming and you will suffer. You know, I actually heard that from family members about Junior, Bush Jr. I think the Republican voter base who is the uh, evangelical wing uh, I think that's always sort of the perception of the presidency. That's kind of common. So now I'm writing this letter, trying to understand my own role in what has become an unhinged, dangerous situation for both myself, my little sister, and my parents. Oh, oh man. Oh, man. What bad parents, huh? Jeez, QAnon's real bad, isn't it? It's real bad. And, of course, that's what led to um, tons of rioters that were all white supremacists invading the Capitol on January 6th, as we all know, and I don't think anybody would dispute, right? <clears throat> What's that? I'm sorry, you're saying somebody disputes that? Uh-huh. Okay, hold on. Sorry, guys. I'm getting an update here. Hold on one second. Uh-huh. They did a study. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then only a tiny percentage were white minorities. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they did that. And they said that. Okay. <clears throat> well, apparently... Um, sorry, there is data that shows a new study was done that the Capitol rioters had very few ties to right-wing groups at all. I, I'm being told right now. And the impeachment trial may be over, but hundreds of rioters who stormed the Capitol on January 6th are still facing criminal charges. There's been widespread coverage about some of the insurrectionist ties to far-right militias and white supremacist groups. But new research out of the University of Chicago paints a more nuanced picture of who exactly the rioters were. Are there any broad conclusions that can be drawn from this? Joining us with more is Robert Pape, political science professor at the University of Chicago and director of the Chicago Project on Security and Threats. Professor Pape, uh, great to have you back. Before we get into the specifics here, give us the three to four sentence abstract of what your study found. I should point out that Professor Pape is no Republican. <laughs> and uh, this was a study conducted by a university using, well, actually, I'll let him explain it. But um, he, he really, he, I would say, if anything, he has more of a, an agenda that skews to the left. 
That's why his findings, in, in some sense, are, I think, maybe even more intriguing. It's terribly important that we understand the who were the insurrectionists on January 6th if we're going to develop viable solutions that truly work for America. With a large research team of 22, um, we have studied over 250 individuals who have been arrested for either breaking into the Capitol building or grounds on January 6th. That's 250 of the 800 who did that. Our findings are really quite surprising. It turns out only a small fraction are a collection of right-wing militias. Um, what we see is a new mass political movement with violence at its core. Professor Pape isn't going to come right out and say it because the implications are massive and somebody else in a different position needs to be the one to say it. But what he's implying here and what he's going to get into as we get to the data is that it, this is a political movement that represents a large section of the U.S. population. It, it is beyond just like the Proud Boys. It is way way beyond the Proud Boys. And only 10% of those militias, uh, the other 90% folks that have not associated with that, you also dug into some other demographic. So he just quickly says it there, but what, what he just sort of casually mentions is that 90% of the people involved that they surveyed in the Capitol riot had no ties to any militia group. And with that, you also dug into some other... It turns out only a small fraction are a collection of right-wing militias um, what we see is a new mass political movement with violence at its core. And only 10% of those militias, uh, the other 90% folks that have not associated with that, you also dug into some other demographic uh, info. 85% were employed, including, well, there's a, we're taking a look at the graphic here of uh, folks not in militias. 85% were employed, including some CEOs and small business owners, 9% unemployed. That's huge. 9% unemployed goes way against the idea that these are a bunch of right-wing white supremacist wackos who are sitting around unemployed. Get more into that in a second. 13% of the people arrested that were surveyed were business owners, CEOs. What, a, what does that tell us? Think about that for a moment. 28% were white-collar jobs. Um, a Google field operations specialist a regional bank portfolio manager, doctors, attorneys, and architects, 28% made up the people that were arrested. They were employed. Now, remember that Washington Post article I cited, some of them, even though they were business owners, in the past had major financial issues. So it doesn't just because they have jobs doesn't mean that they were uh, you know, rolling in the money. But I think it goes against the typical narrative of what these people um, would make up who represents these people, the fact that it's CEOs and white-collar employees from Google and doctors, that that speaks to something broader than what our 
discourse is talking about right now. Dug into some other demographic uh, info, 85% were employed, including, well, there's a, we're taking a look at the graphic here of uh, folks not in militias. Well, 85% were employed, including some CEOs and small business owners, 9% unemployed. Uh, what does that tell you? Well, what's really striking, so I've been doing demographic profiles of political violence here for three decades. Um, and what's striking is the 13% who are business owners on January 6th, uh, the 28% in addition to those 13% who come from white collar occupations, doctors, lawyers, accountants. This is very striking, Paris, because normally we don't even have a category for business owner when we study political violence. And so this is a very big sign that we're dealing with a new political movement with violence at its core that can't be reduced easily to the usual suspects. That is, if only we just simply rounded up all the Proud Boys here, we'd be uh, going to nip the problem in the bud. This isn't, there are Proud Boys to be sure, but almost 90% are not affiliated with any uh, organized military group or militia. And this is really very important. And it's not exclusively low, it's not exclusively low income as you find here. Although at the same time, the Washington posted analysis that found that 60% of those arrested had faced prior money troubles, debt, uh, foreclosure, tax liens. How do you square those sets of data? Uh, well, I, I've talked to Todd. So Todd was the reporter, and you'll see he he uh, you know quotes our study uh, fondly uh, here. Um, well, he goes back two decades, and as I told him, and he said in the, his piece, it's very important when you go back two decades um, to realize that things that happened 20 years ago may not have bearing on what you did on January 6. Now they might. I'm not trying to say they they don't at all. Um, but that just means we need to have more understanding here to see um, uh, as we go forward. So Todd looked at just 125 uh, here, so not the full set of, you know, over 250 uh, here. Um, and if you include the full set, you would see that it really reduces those numbers down. I'm not, and I don't want to diminish Todd's work. I think he's done great work, but we this just only points to how we need to do more truly systematic analysis. And people can still be employed and be facing money troubles, as, as we all know. Yes, we definitely can. Um, he goes on a lot more, um, but I want to move forward. He was also interviewed, uh, Professor uh, Pape uh, there, P-A-P-E. He was interviewed by Mike Morell. Does that name ring a bell? Yeah, Mike Morell, the, the guy that was number two in the CIA during Bush running the torture program. Then he ran the CIA for a little bit. Then during the election, 2016 election, he became a shill for Hillary Clinton, kind of wrecked his name, both because he's tied to torture. So that's why he was out on the Biden administration. They they rejected him because of his ties to torture, but also because he went so hard for Hillary and then was sort of caught on air. But CBS, you know, they, they have tight ties with uh, CIA agents and they gave him a podcast. <laughs> yeah. They gave him a podcast. They gave Mike Morell, the former number two and temporary number one at the CIA, the guy that ran the torture program during the Bush-Cheney years, has a podcast at CBS. <laughs> and on CBS, he interviewed Professor Pape, and uh, he made a couple of more points that I wanted to play on the show. 
perhaps the most striking finding, though, of all that we found um, is that only 12% are coming from uh, militant uh, gangs and militias like the Proud Boys. Uh, to be sure, uh, 37 are Proud Boys or Oath Keepers or Three Percenters. There's no doubt 37 are, but that's 37 out of 290. I think the reason why I wanted to emphasize that and why it matters is because you look at the discourse that's happened, the fencing around D.C., the fact that the National Guard has remained there, the militarization that's happened at our Capitol, the blanket surveillance for anyone in that area justified by these groups. Well, it turns out like damn near 90 percent were people just walking around. And they kind of got caught up in the moment, which is exactly what we saw on our live stream, which is on unfilter.tube. You can see the night we live streamed it. It's mostly just people walking around catching history. But there was one more conclusion that this guy came to that I thought was worth discussing. What made the Capitol Hill um, attack a storm were the 88% who were not part of the right wing uh, militias and that's why we really need to understand what's occurring um, in the situation. I think what it really is, I think our, our federal representatives, they know how screwed the American people have been for a long time and how angry they should be. And there is a discussion right now, a disagreement that's happening right now between Pelosi and some Republicans about the 9-11 style commission to investigate the Capitol riots, which they are in the process of setting up right now. And frankly, it, it comes down to, well, kind of exactly what you would expect. And I, I'm going to play this entire clip for you as much as I can just to demonstrate what a hot mess Nancy is in this interview. I complimented her last week, but boy, oh boy, is she just gone in this in this clip democratic speaker of the house congresswoman nancy pelosi of Cal first of all she's got the biggest mask you've ever seen in your life on i mean the sucker is legitimately larger than the diaper i would put on a, a baby that's a year old i mean it is ginormous uh and she'll she'll she has it on for a reason she's going to get to that as part of her random ass that i may or may not be able to get through i legitimately might not be able to get through this with you I may have to fast forward her, but I'm going to try to play as much as I can of this. Uh, and uh, it's just this is rough, but we're going to try to do it together. California, thank you so much for being on this morning. I know we're going to be talking about the covid relief bill. But first, I want to ask you about the investigation into security and everything surrounding the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Where do we stand with a 9-11 type commission or some sort of commission to look into a TikTok of what went wrong that day? Well, first, let me uh, say happy St. Patrick's Day to you. I was excited to see the Taoiseach on earlier. Uh, later today, <laughs> we will have our annual lunch virtual. It was started by Tip O'Neill and Ronald, President Ronald Reagan in 19, uh, 1973. It was the following year the two of them then invited the Taoiseach. So it's been a tradition all these years, this year virtual. We're very excited to see the Taoiseach and uh, the, uh, the Brexit talks had complicated the nine, the uh, Good Friday, uh, the, the, the assurances that we needed to have. 
Okay, so so far I'm doing okay. It's kind of funny. I gotta say this mask has no seal, and so the Discord that's watching live is completely distracted by Nancy's huge mask and her, her like her bottom half of her chin's just hanging out. And she's just like free flowing. So like you know all the air exchange is happening right there. This mask has zero efficacy, but it's it's a real statement. Um and we are now a solid uh, 30, 45 seconds into this interview, and she has not answered Mika's question. Uh, I had the privilege of speaking to the dial, the, the um, uh, that's not how they pronounce it, uh, the Parliament of <laughs> Ireland joining President Reagan and President Clinton in doing that on this subject. So today's an exciting day for us, Richie Neal, the new uh, Republican co-chair, Kelly, uh, to uh, welcome the Taoiseach and the... Irish American president of the United States to celebrate that in the in the capital virtually, uh, as the Taoiseach said this morning. Next year, he'll be here, and we will have it actually. In, Where is she right now? In the capital. Oh, the capital. And in the capital is where that horrible thing happened uh, on January. There, she's got it again. She's back on track. Sixth, the. Uh, uh, Disagreements that we're having about having a bipartisan commission. The disagreements that they're having about having. And it must be bipartisan is on the scope. Uh, it's on the scope, guys. They are the, on the other side. They don't want any, uh, any findings included in, in how we go. They don't want... They don't want any findings included in how we go. Uh, they want to treat something like Black Lives Matters. Black Lives Matters. They want to treat something like Black Lives Matters. Okay, we got to go back for that. We got to go back for Black Lives Matters. Included in, in how we go. They don't want, uh, they want to treat something like Black Lives Matters. They don't want Black Lives Matters protests. The Democrats don't want the Black Lives Matters protests to be included when looking at the violence leading up to the riots, but they want the Trump rally and like the Texas stuff around the Biden bus to be included. That's what this is about, but she's having a hard time getting it out. She can't even get Black Lives Matters out. Included in, in how we go. They <laughs> I gotta is on the scope. Uh, they are the, on the other side. They don't want any... Uh, any findings included in, in how we go. They don't want, uh, they want to treat something like Black Lives Matters uh, peaceful demonstrations in a similar manner as they would do January 6th. So the main problem is the scope of the investigation. Now, we the main problem is the Republicans want to have a fair investigation. It's kind of what it sounds like she's saying, only she does. She just didn't prepare. You know, maybe she could have ran that through first. Uh, <laughs> boy, what a mess. I just I, I just think it's pretty it's pretty interesting that essentially it's it's her. It's Nancy Pelosi. It's Chuck Schumer and and Kamala Harris that are working together to advise Joe Biden to run the country. That has to be that has to be what's happening right now when I look at that. And when I when I look at her trying to just get through a couple of minutes of conversation, I I, I do worry about that decision stack, if you will. But I, it's not, you know what, you know, I'm going to, I'm not going to worry about it. Instead, I'm going to uh, focus on a high note because cannabis seems to be moving towards federal legalization. Today, the legal cannabis industry is worth about $20 billion. 
and that's dwarfed by the illicit market, which is worth over $100 billion. Right now, currently, cannabis is federally illegal. So states throughout the years, starting with California in 1996, have slowly passed state laws that allow for certain legal markets. Medical marijuana is legal in some form or another in about 40 states. Some states only allow for the use of CBD. Others allow for wide access to all types of cannabis products to treat all kinds of conditions. It's an industry with a lot of nuance. There are some pretty significant changes on the horizon, though. For 2021, the Senate is now in the control of Democrats, and Democrats are very motivated to change federal law. So timeline of when cannabis could be legalized on the federal level, it's, it's still up in the air, but um, it's going to happen sooner rather than later. Now, here's the funny thing about that. Even the threat of federal legalization happening soon creates this knock-on effect. It is it is within the state's best interest to legalize it locally and set up their own laws before Uncle Sam determines what their laws are because you know, state's providence, right? You can if you want if you want a market that best serves you, it's in your interest to set up the rules, right? Think about that. So why not set up the rules yourself before the federal government does, which means you're going to see a lot of activity kind of kick up all of a sudden. Stuff that's been pent up for a while is really going to start popping. You had to pinpoint a date at which the majority, there, there'll be a few that may not do it, but call it 40 states legalize cannabis in some way. Any way to pinpoint when that might be? You know, I think that it probably happens before you have federal normalization. So there's a lot of road to hoe. Uh, but we already have uh, most states either with programs in existence or uh, that are considering some form of program to be launched. And so I think it's it's just a matter of, of, a, of a brief period of time. Well, I'm sure you're talking to lobbyists and people in a variety of states. I mean, even the states that haven't come out publicly, are you getting the sense? Are you getting the word, maybe the back channels that there are many more states that are considering this possibility because they don't want to miss out on tax revenue when somebody wants to drive 15 miles over the border to the neighboring state. No, that's a great point. And I think compounding that is the fact that states that could create their own laws are able to preempt federal lawmaking and federal regulations. And that's very important in terms of establishing an ecosystem that the states can manage, uh, can really drive employment from, and can really drive tax revenue from. But there's also something else. It turns out because it's, it's, uh, because of that that borderline issue, it's kind of creating pressure on the bordering states to do something about their cannabis policy. So because some states want to get ahead of the federal government and they're beginning to legalize, it kind of makes the other states want to get in on the tax revenue action. And this is really well demonstrated right now between Wyoming and Utah. And I remember thinking when Wyoming legalizes, that's going to be the watershed moment. And it puts a lot of pressure on on Utah, which has a Puritan base, uh, that, that look at cannabis consumption a little askew, you could say. And so I thought it would be fun to go get some local Utah reporting about those bastards across the border who are about to legalize. I present you this. <laughs> 
Marijuana legislation is advancing in Wyoming. Fox 13 News first told you about the bill last month, and now it has taken a turn. So, Bob, instead of only medical cannabis, a powerful Wyoming lawmaker has now introduced a bill for full legalization of marijuana, and that could mean dispensaries right on the border. Fox 13's Wen Winslow has the story from Utah's Capitol Hill. The Wyoming State Legislature's House Judiciary Committee considered two bills. The first studies whether Wyoming is ready for medical cannabis. The people of Wyoming are increasingly supportive of, of, of medical marijuana. But the second goes much further. I love how they're selective with the clips here in their reporting. It allows for possession of retail marijuana at legal age of 21. That bill is being sponsored by the House Majority Whip and a dozen other lawmakers. It generated the most debate. It's about time to quit kicking it down the road. My main point here is to plea for... For what? What do you think? Plea for... Uh, stop To stop putting people in jail for smoking something that grows in the ground, uh, literal weed? To stop destroying families over cannabis consumption? to stop preventing patients from getting access that eases their symptoms? Do you think it's that? Or do you think it's, uh, what, uh, we don't want the wacky tobacco to uh, to uh, make the black people rape the women? Is that what it is? That's Because uh, that's truly the disgusting root of a lot of cannabis paranoia. It goes back to racist implications from a long time ago that are completely untrue. And a lot of people don't realize, like this lady, that they're citing some of that. Um, for the brains of the children of Wyoming. Oh, we can't legalize it because of the brains of the children. The Think of the brains of the children. But the reality is, if Wyoming legalizes and everybody around Utah legalizes, they're going to be out. They're going to be out of that sweet money. And... They're also going to be out of a very diverse and inclusive industry. And that could become a bit of a political pressure as well, because the truth is the cannabis industry is so new that it's really open to everyone. There's no long term businesses that have been around for 100 years and entrenched the good old boys. It's open to anyone. Welcome back to Squawk this morning. Cannabis stocks outperforming the market this year. And as the industry expands, more women are playing a major role in its growth. For that, Frank Holland joins us now with more. Good morning to you, Frank. Hey, good morning to you, Andrew. The cannabis industry added 77,000 new jobs in 2020, and the majority were women, according to a new report. The percentage of women in cannabis had increased from 39 percent in 2019 to 42% last year. The report also finds that nearly half of all cannabis workers, they've been in the industry a year or less. That dynamic increases the chances for female advancement, according to Carson Humiston, the founder of Banks, a cannabis staffing business. To be able to come and, and join a company, get equity in the early days and work in a business for a couple of years and then technically be considered someone with a lot of experience in cannabis um, is, is, is great and a great opportunity for women. And women as cannabis customers also growing. New data from Ease, a cannabis delivery service in California, shows women have grown to nearly half of their overall customers in 2020. We talked that trend with Caroline Pinot, an adult use dispensary owner in Massachusetts. 
There's opportunities still to define what it means to have retail cannabis stores, cultivation, delivery, social consumption, and it's still being figured out. So um, by all means, I think women um, in many ways are the future of this industry. I mean, who doesn't want to get on that action? Come on, Utah, be inclusive. And it makes it makes sense. Now, listen, I know you hear that music. You think I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. He's been going for way too long, but I am not done yet. Or maybe you're about to get back to your desk. You'd like a little more show. I got you. I got you. We're about to kick off the overtime. If you're watching live, you just sit back and I'm about to roll right into it right now. But if you're listening after the fact and you'd like a little overtime, you'd like a little more show, go to unfilter.tube. There you'll find the overtime for episode 354, as well as the entire live stream. If you'd rather just kick back and watch the whole thing in its somewhat decent video glory, yeah, you know, you know, I'm trying to make it still so you don't miss much on the audio feed. I gave you a hard time at the beginning of the show, but the truth of the matter is, you're my rock. You're my roots. I love you. I'm not going anywhere for you. I got you. Unfilter.show slash subscribe for that. But that is all I have for the main show. So thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode, patreon.com slash unfilter, and I'll see you next week. (laughs) 